As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a well, the owner of a comic book store. Trust me, true believer. Well, Jagger and me, we had a running contest to see who had the most comic books in the world. Whatever, my skate was um, comic books. Net profit to me, negative $59. I love the comics because of the brightness displayed by the fellows who drew them. They remained remain with me always, and when comic books first came into being, it drew me to them. Tales from the Comic Shop Hey, and welcome to Tales from the Comic Shop, the show that takes you behind the counter. I'm your host, Joe, and today I'm joined by Eddie D'Angelini, owner of Heidi Ho Comics. How are you doing, Eddie? I'm doing well, Joe. Thank you very much. And uh, also this week, we have special guest Dave Baker, the writer of Star Trek Voyager, Seven's Reckoning, and Nicole Gu, the artist from Shadow of the Batgirl, and they have a new project. That coming out through Dark Horse Comics called Everyone is Tulip. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. So before we get to Everyone is Tulip, we're going to jump into a little bit of the news. Day, bad idea announced that the end is coming. Oh, say it isn't so. <laughs> it's a uh, interesting situation, to say the least, considering they just got, seems like they just got started. Today, bad idea announced through social media that they will not be continuing. Here's here's the exact quote. They said, we regret to inform you that despite our best efforts and all of your wonderful support, bad idea as we know it must end. Our sincerest thanks for the incredible journey. We'll be announcing and releasing books through the end of the year. Beyond that, bad idea is over. Hmm. There's some interesting wording in that, in that drop. Yeah. It's the wording is a bit vague and open-ended, which leads all of us to believe that they're not going away. They're probably moving into some other territory or possibly another form of marketing. So given that news, I would love to hear what our guests possibly think of this. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's no way that they're going away. <laughs> they're just, this is a, you know, this is a kayfabe persona thing that they're doing. I mean, that's kind of the whole shtick with their company, right? Is there... They're artificially creating scarcity in order to jack up prices in the secondary market in order to leverage the intellectual property for their books to Hollywood because all of their books are work for hire. They're not creator-owned. The creators don't have any stake in them. So Dinesh and all the other people behind the scenes can kind of you know corporately mine the comics. And they're doing it on a very small scale. They're publishing limited amount of books. And they're you know, like not even really going through major distribution channels. So there's very low risk on their behalf. And the way they make noise is by doing stuff like this. Like they pull stunts, right? Like that the thing they did at that convention with the box where like mm. you could ask the box a question or like the thing where you clicked on a button on their website for a million times and then it gave you whatever, a reveal or whatever, which is, again, like it's just a publicity stunt so they can go into a meeting in some, you know, high rise here in downtown LA and be like, all right, guys, so we got 1,400,000 clicks on our website. And the development executive is like, wow, people must love Hank whatever pizza delivery boy, whatever that book they did is. <laughs> um, yeah, no, they're not going anywhere because there's no reason to because there's no real money at stake. Like Dinesh has got deep pockets from all of the Valiant stuff. So he's just funding this. Is, this is his weird little 
tinkering project in the corner. You're not going anywhere. Yeah. Pulling stunts. I couldn't have put it in better words. <laughs> yeah. Nobody involved in Bad Idea is doing this for the betterment of the comics industry. They're doing it to try and make some money, which, yeah. you know, more power and to the, them, I guess. Whatever. And something that I'll mention here that really is what rubs me the wrong way about Bad Idea in general Everybody is talking about the company, their marketing, the stunts they pull, where, what are they going to do next, the button that you click a million times. Is anybody ever actually talking about the stories, the content, the art? The, the, it's just all flash, and they're not talking about the substance. Yeah. That really bothers me because that should come first. The story and the art and what you're telling, the substance of the work. And then all the viral marketing and all that on top of that is like, you know, a big fun thing that you can do to get it in front of people's faces. But if what you're putting in front of people's faces is just kind of just a hollow nothing, then what's the point? Yeah, I mean, I agree completely. And I think uh, they know it's that, you know, like I, I know a lot of the guys over there, both on the creative ranks and the, you know, the company side. And I don't have any necessarily ill will towards them personally like i i like a lot of them they're very nice guys but also i just have a completely separate and divergent moral compass i think that's like most people in comics though like almost everyone you interact with not everyone but so many of the people you interact with are cool on a personal level but then you look at their business practices and look at their contracts and it's it just is not good (laughs) yeah Uh, for the two of you as creators did you ever wake up in the morning and think, I want to get into this field and I want to be in this field because I want to create buzz. No, you you get into it because yeah. you want to tell great stories. You want to put your, your heart and your soul on the page, not just what's something really totally fun, crazy marketing we can do to get everybody's eyes on us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, completely. I mean, just the fact that all of their books are work for hire that tells you everything mm-hmm. you need to know. Like they're not publishing, they're not publishing books that um, the creators are putting their whole heart and soul in, um, because that how, how could you? Like you, it's work for hire. And also, they're they're not they're explicitly not attempting to make comics a better place. They're not fighting for people's rights. They're not uh, trying to have better royalties. They're not trying to get the books in places where casual readers could come in to grow the reader base. They're not working with retailers to try and make the books accessible. They're, it, they're purposefully trying to court a very, 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 very vocal minority of the readership. Like the, in comics, there's like three pools of people, right? There's like comics readers, comics collectors, and speculators. And they're trying to go after specifically the, the third quadrant, the speculators, because that's those are the people that are ravenous and they're going to buy a book for $25 on eBay because they think that they'll be able to flip it for $50 in two weeks, which is fucking bullshit. Like we all lived through the 90s and yet somehow these practices are back again. I really, it's completely befuddling to me. I can't agree more. They're going after the person that will buy the same book 10 times over because each one is a particular variant cover yeah every time i see a book with like more than two covers i get very suspicious what was that (laughs) uh there was a dc book i think i guess at this point it would be two years ago that had like 50 different covers you take your pick there's Uh, a lot of them yeah yeah 
try being a retailer and try doing the the monthly initial orders because oh, there are oh. some publishers or some books where you literally have to swim through pages of variant covers for the same issue. And I have to think, who is ordering all of this? Outside of Midtown Comics, who is ordering all of these? It just seems crazy. And the weirdest part about that to me is that, like, I don't think that your average reader, like, I think hardcore speculators probably understand how this system works. And they're, they understand because it's something that's interesting to them. The thrill of the chase is, you know, exciting. And that's cool. Like, I, I kind of get that as, like, a forager who likes to go through back issue bins. I get it to an extent. The thing that I don't think most average comics fans realize is how gated variants work. I don't think they understand that like order all variants and, and gated variants are completely different things. And I, it's so irksome to me when I see people kind of unwittingly steering themselves into the ditch by paying extra or, you know, pressuring their shop to get a certain variant because they just like that artist. And, you know, of course they do. That's why Stoko or Peach Momoko or any of these people get put on those uh, Jen Bartel, they get put on those gated variants because they have a big fan base who want their work. But then there's this bizarre, stilted weight put on retailers where they're forced to order 5X, 10X, 100X of the book that they can't sell. Hallelujah. Like, Preach it. Preach it. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> there are some books, I have, there are some can... books where I've seen the one in 1000. It makes sense. Um, I mean, like, yes and no. The Berserker yes no, Keanu no. cover. <laughs> one in 1,000 kind of makes sense. The Dark Knight 3 Jim Lee sketch variant, one in 1,000, makes a little bit of sense because Jim Lee's drawing on that book specifically, that one book. You know what I mean? Yes and no. And I want to give you a perfectly good example. Amazing Spider-Man 800. Uh, you remember they did some pretty premium variants. So it was like one in 500s, one in 1,000s. That was that yeah. variant. I you have a one in 1,000, don't you? I don't, know. <laughs> Uh, we, I thought we you got, got the it. JR was, Senior. Oh, oh, but that wasn't gotten through the shop. That was through something else <laughs> entirely different. Okay, but but the point being is that I I went after those variants and got them. And yeah. yes, I made enough money on them to pay for all the other copies that I had to order to get those variants. But now in the storage room of my shop, I have boxes and boxes and boxes of Amazing Spider-Man 800 that I will never ever sell children's hospital that that's the word that i, I have give to them say away to, to kids i <laughs> yeah. literally i give them away to kids we have a box no uh, I, I, that's, that's an yeah. unsustainable way to do business you shouldn't it be is. filling up your storerooms with old comics just to get these chase variants i understand that yeah but then another thing is like not all comics are for all people or i would have an amazing fantasy 15 and a tech 27 and a uh you know i mean like so i i for completionists, as a collector, I understand sure. why the one in 1000 is so irksome. And for a shop owner, yeah, I can see it's yeah. a total nightmare. Yeah, I made enough money off of those variants to pay for all the run. But what did it get me? I just broke even. Yeah, and I now didn't you make have profit, all these really. books to And now I have all these or... books that I'm literally just giving away. Yeah, so I understand. The difference between that uh, Keanu Reeves Berserker is that... Uh, people went all in on that because they said they announced that the copies of that book are going to be returnable. 
So yeah, you can order the thousand copies and get that variant. And then the other 990 that you don't sell, you can return them all. And there's, and there's two reasons for doing that, right? Like there's the retail reason, which is like Valiant back in the day. Well, I say back in the day, like six years ago or whatever, like <laughs> Valiant used to do a lot of, you know, you know, chromium variants, metal variants, all that shit on uh, number ones specifically yep. to try and encourage, they would, tr- they would use that speculator momentum to try and encourage shops to buy really long on number ones to try and get people to turn turned onto the books which does that work i don't know but at least that's a strategy that theoretically has a sliver of like positivity to it whereas the this the keanu thing that you're talking about the only reason that was done is i mean they can say it's to get people into the world of berserker but it's not. It's so that Ross Ritchie and Boom can go into a development meeting and say, guess how many copies we sold? People love Berserker. Ding, 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 ding. And the, the, when you have uh, retailers returning the majority of the books they ordered, then those numbers are really falsified. Yeah, it, they're 100% fake. Yeah, the amount of comics now that are built completely around the... TV and movie system is just so depressing to me because those those comics aren't about comics. They're not about good stories. They're just about a movie deal. And it's yeah. and a movie deal that the creators don't even get a great percentage of most of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's well, really depressing. <laughs> it's really comics depressing. Comics are depressing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, in case you guys don't They'll know, I'm also, I'm also an indie creator as well. So I totally can sympathize with all of this. Yeah. And yes, in the words of Jack Kirby, comics will break your heart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, moving on to something even more douchey, if it's possible. <laughs> Logan Paul fought Floyd Mayweather last night, and he wore his <laughs> 10.0 Charizard as a necklace or chain uh, as he when he went out to the ring. So that led to rampant speculation that the next move in hip-hop will be for... Uh, MCs to uh, yep. kind of flavor flavor their CGC books. So are we going to see yep. Hulk 181s used as bling, <laughs> like diamond-studded yep. Hulk 181s on chains? Yeah. Re- replace Does it cost that, more if it has celebrity sweat on it? Replace that giant <laughs> clock with uh, Amazing Spider-Man 129. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love now, it. Uh, I would have liked uh, Logan Paul to put his money where his mouth is and leave that card chain on his neck while he's fighting so floyd can punch the crap out of it well to be honest i I don't think that when i think they both got 10 million last night i don't think the charizard loss would be a big hit to him well um (laughs) correct me if i'm wrong what i read was floyd's payday was 10 million uh logan paul it was something like 200 to 300 thousand Yes. Oh, interesting. Those, 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 that's yes. what their that's what their fees were. But then Floyd got fifty percent of the pay per view, and Logan got ten percent of the pay per view. So at the end of it, I think so Floyd got money. like two hundred million. Oh, I, I, I would have really have liked to seen Floyd Mayweather get laid out last night. Just I, I don't know. Who I mean, I, I don't like Logan Paul or more. Jake Paul or whatever his name is, but I hate Floyd Mayweather. That guy's. Yeah, I'm I, mean, going, I, I mean, he's a wife-beating piece of shit. I'm going, I'll, I'll go on the record and say that all yeah, day, I mean, every I, day. I, I have I, no no respect for that man. I, ha- I have a just supreme distaste for both of them. But yeah. man, did I want to see Logan Paul get a, 
get a comeuppance, and it did not happen. Well, I, I was mean, so the, sad. And the thing is, there's no way for him to come out of that like worse than before because if he goes the distance with Floyd, that's a win. If he gets knocked out by Floyd, that's what everyone expected to happen, anyways. But if he knocks out Floyd Mayweather, if Floyd Mayweather gets knocked out by the YouTube guy, that's a humiliation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I was rooting for that. <laughs> I think we can all agree that the real loser were all the pay per view customers. And yes. just everybody <laughs> in the whole world. Yeah. But I do hope we start seeing rappers wearing uh, mm-hmm. blinged out CGC books. Oh, absolutely. Can you imagine a comic <laughs> artist getting that paid that much to do anything? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe Todd. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. It's a big maybe, I could though. What did Frank. Miller get for uh, the spirit? Dark Knight Two? No, for Dark Knight oh. Two, didn't he get like a million dollars? And that was like the biggest thing ever at that point. Like, because it was non royalties. That was like his page rate was two hundred and fifty grand per issue. That's my memory of it, anyway. Wow, that's that. That's a terrible book, too. <laughs> it's not. <good. laughs> yeah, it's it's not really, good. really bad. Yeah, it uh, is a mind-boggling page rate. Yeah. And, you know, with inflation, I wonder what that would equal up to. Yeah, yeah, because this was in 2001, right? That's when he, he started working yeah. in 2000 and then... You said 250000 No, it wouldn't have been after Sin City? No, because the reason why it's... One of the reasons why it's so bad is because it, he was drawing it during 9-11. Oh, okay. He was, he was drawing a page <laughs> where the Batmobile slams into a building and the building crashes down on 9-11. Okay. Um... And yeah, he got paid. My memory is that he got paid a million dollars without royalty. Like he would get royalties and everything, and they were a, it was a good rate. But his page rate was a million dollars for the four issues. Gotcha. Okay. Just so you know, if we if that was twenty two pages an issue, that's eleven thousand per page. <laughs> eleven thousand per page. I love it. That is actually more than. And crazy. when you look at and when you look at those pages, some of those pages are just like. You know, plastic man going. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, that whole Adam sequence is, I think, is one. I mean, like I I love the Dark Knight Returns and Year One. Those are two just seminal works, and I'm understand that Frank Miller he went through a very dark time (laughs) around then, and I I heard he's come out of it. I've heard that he's doing much, much better. And I think some of that shows in DK three, I thought that was significantly better than DK two. Um, but, uh, bar was low, but DK two is not only was the bar low, but like low key. I don't think Frank Miller wrote most of that. Like, I think that was like 90 to 80% Brian Azarella. Um, Hmm. which, you know, that's interesting. I don't really care one way or the other, but like, it's definitely not, Frank. Like you can feel it in the dialogue. It's like Brian doing Frank Miller. And then I, w- I got really into this when it was coming out. Cause I was like, this is so weird. Why is this happening? But it, <laughs> there's a bunch of interviews where Frank, like d- early on in the press tour, like I think it debuted at like New York comic-con and he does a panel where he basically low key says, you know, I was like a consultant on it and I, and I, you know, I gave some dialogue tweaks and blah, blah, blah. <sighs> And then, like, a couple conventions later, somebody asked him about that. He's like, no, I wrote it all. Brian was just there as a, an assistant to me, like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, you know. Somebody got a press note. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> somebody got a hold of him. Go just one more thing. I, I got I to gotta talk shit about Batman. Just one, one, one more thing. <laughs> go, because go. remember, originally, it was announced, Dark Knight 3 was originally announced as it was going to be 
Brian Azzarello and Scott Snyder and Frank Miller. And then oh, Scott really? Snyder backed away. He well, backed that's away not too in many <laughs> because of family commitments, which is code for this is crazy. I don't want to fuck with these guys. They're what <laughs> I, I'm not about this life. So he left, uh, which probably was a good decision for him. Although I'm sure he would have seen a lot of royalties off of those because you know when you have 45 variant covers, all which are gated, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna make some sweet sweet chunk of change. Oh yeah, no, yeah. Bring it back around. <laughs> I mean, until until we had this insane price spike, I'm pretty sure DK three number one was it one in one thousand or one in five thousand. I can't remember what the Jim Lee sketch covers were, but uh, that was the number one selling modern book of all time, price wise. And it, wow. yeah, because it for it a was while, like twenty two thousand or something. Yeah, and also I feel like it rivaled in just in terms of raw sales the last two highest selling books from my memory anyway are star wars number one the jason aaron thing which they also had 75 variant covers on and then after that it was dk3 and i feel like there's another one that i'm missing that was a really like we are pumping this book with so many variants to try and get it over a million and they didn't quite hit a million but it was hmm. something like that but those are the three that that uh my memory says <laughs> we're like you know selling 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 yeah, whatever this third book is that you can remember now, it's going to bug me because I'm sure I was, you know, <laughs> it, owning a shop the at the time of because the I, second part of the yeah, because I owned the shop at the time those other two came out. So I'm wondering what this third one is now. I, maybe I, I mean, I, again, like my memory is like a fucking sieve, so there, yeah, it could be too. later or yeah. But I, my memory is that definitely those Star Wars number one and and DKR three, yeah, uh, the Master Race. Uh, yeah, those were the those were the 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 highest selling books in a long time. Which well, I still can't believe they let him call it that. <laughs> that's, I know, right? That's that's a lot of faith mm. in Frank Miller, <laughs> and I'm yeah. not sure he had deserved it at that point in his career either. No, we yeah, all remember real. Holy Terror, don't we? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in uh, in other news, our millionaire listeners will be happy to hear. 8.5 Tech 27 just hit the CGC census in blue. It is the second highest graded copy of Tech 27. And it just showed up. It just magically yep, just popped appeared. up on the census last week. Yep. So what do you think the story behind this is? Do you think maybe oh, I have somebody, no clue. somebody <laughs> I don't found even want to speculate. it? Maybe somebody uh, got a collection that was left to him by a family member. I mean, some. I don't. I want to know the backstory. Where's this yeah, book not, um, from? It's not uh, Nick Cage's, right? Because wasn't that a whole thing where he had like an action comics no, one? And no, no. And I don't know if you know this story. Do you know the story about his car being stolen? No, I don't think so. Okay, uh, he had told he has told the story a couple of times. It's just an amazingly whacked out story. Uh, he had um, I don't know about Batman, but at the time he had a pretty extensive Superman collection. And he had some older issues of Superman and action comics where the ones that he had were the only known copies to even exist. And so he was moving these from one safe storage to another, and he had them all in the trunk of his car. And oh, no. at some point where he, he was driving, he stopped somewhere and his car was stolen, immediately stolen. Like literally he turned his back and it was gone. Uh, the person who stole it 
just took off and drove. I don't know where got way out of LA somewhere because he put it in a lake when he realized whose car he stole, he freaked out, he panicked and he put it in a lake. He never looked in the trunk. He never knew those comics were in there. So that whole collection that was worth millions upon millions just destroyed. <laughs> so um, he doesn't really have as, as extensive of a collection as he used to have. Mm. Uh, there was one; he did have a copy copy of Action Comics number one. Uh, it was stolen at some point, but it was insured, so he got the money. That copy later on turned up somewhere in a storage unit auction years. Yeah, later. it has a pedigree on it, doesn't it? I think it yes, has a Nick Cage and, pedigree. Yes. And it went up for auction as like the Nick Cage action comics number one. And people thought, well, that's, you know, BS. How, how is it that it went up for auction and he, it wasn't returned to him. And the reason being is he had it insured and he was paid out for it. Full value. Man. (sighs) I don't know what's more, I don't know what's more tragic. The fact that he was cast as Superman and didn't get to play him. The fact that he had all these super com superhero Superman comics and they all got stolen. The fact he had an action comics number one in a separate incident that got stolen. This guy, he just must like look at a Superman logo and start crying. Like there's just so much sadness. No, when he told the story though, people were like freaking out going, Oh my God. And his reaction was, Hey man, it's just things. They're just things. Well, in terms of having money, having lost the money, that probably doesn't matter. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Did I hear something about us getting a, a Nick Cage Superman cameo in something? Yeah, supposedly. He's in Teen Titans Go to the Movies as Superman. Yeah, and supposedly there's a rumor that he's going to pop up as the Tim Burton Superman in uh, the Flash movie where it's him and Michael right. Keaton Batman running around. I mean, who oh, knows wow. if that's true, but that's the rumor. I don't understand this Flash movie. I I don't know what I believe less. The rumors about the Flash or the rumors about Spider-Man. But it just seems like the budgets on these movies are going to be so... I mean, maybe they can recoup it, I guess. Well, (laughs) hey, look. Didn't everybody say the same thing when they uh, were talking about doing an Avengers movie? And they were saying, how are they going to get all these huge stars in one movie? That's insane. That's crazy. They'll never be able to afford it. Well, how many movies later... You know, yeah. it, it's like mm-hmm. uh, nobody even bats an eye at it. But hey, yeah, that's we, true. we can talk comics and comic movies all day long, but we have two guests here that we want to talk to them about their upcoming book. So, Joe, why don't you jump in and tell them a little bit about it? All right. Well, yeah, they uh, their book is called Everyone is Tulip. You described Everyone is Tulip to me as a story about Internet performance art. You know, that's what it's definitely about. But to me, it was more of a story about lines. Like, where is your line and how far will you move it to get where you want? And once you move those lines, does that change who you fundamentally are? I actually sat down and read it cover to cover. I rarely do that. I thoroughly enjoyed it. The art was beautiful. The story was compelling. It had a bit of a, uh, I want to say David Lynch vibe to me in that I didn't know what anyone's motivations were. I know Tulip wants to be an actress. But so every character that's around her has an ulterior motive and you're never really sure if it goes beyond their surface level. So that makes it Mm -hmm. very compelling. So for the record, I made it halfway through. Uh, I I definitely look forward to uh, finishing it later tonight. 
<laughs> we'll, we'll make sure not to spoil the no ending. Spoilers. Yeah. yeah, no spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, Joe. That was a that was a great synopsis, though. Yeah, like it's yeah. it's it's a uh, like you Went said, way it's deeper a, than I could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a comic about kind of um, you know interrogating the idea of compromise as an artist. You know, it's like you said, it's about this young actress who moves from Los An- uh, uh, Arizona to Los Angeles in order to try and pursue the life of acting. And when she gets here, discovers that it's not that easy. You don't just walk into a movie studio and become a mega famous actor. And so she kind of takes a series of odd jobs while she's trying to figure it out. She's going to auditions. And she ends up kind of falling backwards into this job uh, for a guy who has a YouTube channel. And he he makes these weird kind of esoteric artistic videos that he puts up online she becomes this viral sensation because of these videos and it fundamentally changes her life. And so the book is kind of like you had said, it's about drawing these lines in the sand and where are you willing to compromise and what is it that you're really trying to achieve as an artist? Um, and, and the book also, you know, is, is this is a real thing. Like we didn't just make up that there are people who make these weirdo YouTube performance artists. Like this is a weird little subculture that does exist online. And, the book itself is informed by and loosely based on those people and, and their kind of struggles. Um, okay. And that's a great segue to my first question, actually. I want to know about the research for the book because the personalities, I mean, I'm up in Oregon and between Portland and Eugene, I have met every single character in that book a couple times over. <laughs> um, <laughs> first off, what kind of like research did you go to put into discovering this world and dig into this world because you seem to really get it. And then what kind of reaction are you hoping for from that world? Yeah, I mean, we, Dave and I, at the time when we started conceptualizing this book, we're both kind of discovering this world of these really strange YouTube videos. And the inspiration ranges from the stuff that's really esoteric, like Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, which is a a YouTube show about these like weird Muppet characters to what's her name? Dalvita is the Russian performance art. And they all kind of have this sort of anti-capitalism basic message, but they try and present it in these really interesting, strange ways. And it goes from anything that's like really weird like that to people who are, are they really even saying it? Anything like uh, currently there's more like TikTokers like Bella Porch who are, doing these weird things on the internet and people are fascinated by it just because it's so weird. And we were looking at all these different channels, kind of diving into the decisions that they were making in their videos, but then also starting to wonder like what their lives are like and how do their lives shift from making a dumb video online to two weeks later, having it go viral and being ultra famous. Um, And that shift in your life, your personal life, what does that do to who you are as a person? What kind of decisions do you have to make along that path? We really kind of just did some research and watched a bunch of videos and kind of tried to learn about these people's lives. The other factor of that is that we both live in LA. So all of the like studio talk, producer talk, Dave is actually in the movie industry. So he's a screenwriter. So he deals with a lot of industry people But also you can just go to a coffee shop and every third person is talking about their next film or project or the audition that they're going on. So we have a lot of kind of lived market research um, (laughs) that we were able to 
kind of try and infuse the story with. Um, and the second question was what we think the YouTubers would want to get out of it or what, like, the I, I was just story. wondering what kind of feedback were you were hoping to see from that world? Like, would you want to get a response? We want, <laughs> we want them all to buy the book. That's yes. what we want. Yes. We want every right, person, yeah. every one of the 64 million people who b- follows Bella Porch should buy <laughs> this book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they can like it if they want, right? But buy it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the, you know, it, it's interesting because that community in the amount of time that we've spent making the book has kind of dispersed a little bit. Like it's still there, but it, it when we started making the book, it was very concrete. These are the six or seven people who all are doing this thing. And now because of the amount of views and attention that they've gotten, they've all kind of like splayed out into, you know, some of them are now musicians. And by musicians, I mean, because they had so many people paying attention to their face, they were given songs but made by producers to stand in front of a camera and lip sync to, you know what I mean? Not to be shitty. Like I'm sure a lot of them have artistic ambitions, but there's a, there, there, there's a weight that comes with that amount of attention, you know, and that kind of, that, that burden is a blessing and a curse, right? And because it gives you everything you've ever wanted theoretically, but also you're probably not going to like what you have to do to get to that point. Um, and so that has happened to a lot of the people that we uh, were kind of interested in and obsessed with while making the book. And it's it's interesting to see how much of our book maps directly onto the various people's lives. Even when the details are completely different, you can feel where they've had to make choices and where they've had to compromise in order to stay relevant. And it's it's very it's very, very interesting. I mean, Logan Paul, in some ways, you know, we started this talking about him. He's kind of one of these people, except he doesn't have like the political bent. He just has the like, I'm a brash kind of, uh, you know, asshole to replay style, you know, like public persona. Yes, asshole too. Uh, You know, that like he has engendered this this massive following of people online. And then there was a period where it almost felt like he didn't know what to do with it, where he was just kind of like, do I just keep making videos? Do I start a podcast? How do I keep staying relevant? How do I push myself? And like he and his brother tried to go into the mainstream. Like that one of them had a YouTube Red TV show. The other one was on a Disney Channel show. And their attitudes were just so bad they got fired from both. So it's this interesting like even when you try and become a part of the establishment, the thing that everybody wants from you almost alienates you from that mechanism that is in air quotes legitimate fame, which at this point in time, what the fuck does that even mean? Yeah, I mean, and we and we breached that topic a little bit in the book of like, if you're known for making this one type of video, but you no longer want to do that, or you're bored of that, or it's not enough, and you want to creatively explore, then how do you shift that? How do you make these TikTok videos where you're just nodding and lip syncing and then become a pop star? Like, how <laughs> do you literally Bella Porch did that? Like, uh, <laughs> you know, and so it's like, how do you take this weird thing that maybe you weren't even really that excited about and morph it into the career that you want? Is that possible? What do you have to sacrifice to make that possible? So yeah, that's definitely something that Becca goes through in the book where she creatively is like, cool, this is great, but I wanted to be an actor, not just do this. How do we make this more interesting? How do we push this? 
And, um, you know, she comes up against some resistance from her collaborators. I think another interesting angle, too, on that is where is someone in their life that they are willing to do things or push the boundary uh, into something that they're not comfortable with because they are in such a position in their life where they just will do anything to get out of it. And there's a scene in the book that it made me laugh and I think really brought it home is when you see the main character in her just dead end, horrible fast food job to where it's a, it's a pirate themed restaurant. And she literally has to refer to the people ordering as matey and landlubber. And um, to your credit, Nicole, the art, the way you drew her face with just (laughs) that complete malaise, just, just, glazed over look in her eye like she would just kill to be anywhere else and from that i think comes this idea of i will do whatever i have to to get out of this well and the thing that's interesting about that is we transition from her being in a dead end that the restaurant is called shiver me burgers and it is in <laughs> almost all of our books at this point But we transition from her being at this dead-end job in Arizona in a place that she hates to being in a dead-end job at a bagel shop in Los Angeles. Like, did she really even change her life that much? Yeah, yeah. And and I think it's also, like, to go back to to what Eddie was saying is, like, I think so much of the reason why the book works the way it works is because of Nicole's art. Like, you couldn't give this book to just any artist. Like, I feel like if you're listening to this interview and it, the, the book itself kind of sounds like something Fanographics would have published in the mid nineties, right? It's like an indie comic. It's sort of slice of life. And it's about people trying to achieve their dreams or whatever, but that doesn't quite capture, like I, it, seeing really is believing, especially for Nicole's work where you look at it and it, there is such a life and a vitality and a slickness and um, an accessibility to her, the way she draws. Like so much of the book, there's this recurring theme of like them shooting the videos and the tulip character just kind of looking at the camera and saying everyone is tulip in these weird costumes, right? And there's th- these nine panel grids that are those drawings and there's a shitload of them in the book. Um, which were really easy for me to write because all I had to do was just go panel one. Tulip says everyone is tulip. Knock yourself out. But Nicole, like, do it lav- eighteen times. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> N- Nicole lavishly illustrates these nine panel grids with these extreme, otherworldly kind of almost uh, fifth element esque costumes. Right, these couture uh, visions of fashion, modern modernity writ large. Right, and I think that there's there's that the juxtaposition that that is the kind of pinnacle of what our culture values against what we're talking about. The like working in a fucking fast food restaurant, which is the reality, right? The reality of being an American nine times out of 10 is I'm too poor to afford vegetables. So it looks like I'm eating McDonald's tonight. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there, there's such a specific patina to how, especially the, the stuff that was coming out when we were conceptualizing the book, um, of these YouTube videos, I was really trying to capture that otherworldliness of the videos, this this feeling of being on the internet, being in this weird other space, and taking that and kind of like butting it up right against the real life stuff that happens in the book. And so 
there's color decisions where, um, with the help of Ellie Hall, our wonderful colorist, you know, we use certain colors to denote different things within the book. Like anything that is this really kind of um, vibrant light blue represents all of the internet stuff. And when you put that right next to the pinkish tonal um, real life stuff, it makes it feel even weirder, more separate, takes it a step away from anything that's existing in her real life world. I think well, that actually I, you just know what? kind of solidified for me why I kind of felt the David Lynch vibe when I was reading it. Cause mm-hmm. I was just like, this is very surreal. Is there some kind of twist coming? You know, like I, as any kind of audience member these days, you're always looking for the twist and it just like, yeah, it, it really does a very good job of just putting you in like an uncomfortable space and kind of leaving you there to stew in it. And it was definitely a different experience. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I have to Um, say again, how much the art and the colors really uh, kind of accentuated, really kind of stressed this fantasy world, this, this weird, otherly worldly surreal world that the main character found herself kind of moving through and the art just fit that so well. I was just going to say it, it's it's interesting too because to go back to what you were saying, Joe, of like David Lynchy otherworldliness. When we first started it, we actually were going to do more Lynch stuff. Like we had talked a lot about Lynch and Satoshi Kon, um, and we were gonna. The book was originally going to be kind of more like Perfect Blue. If you've seen that anime, where there's like a character who, it's it's really great. You highly, okay, highly, highly recommend it. Uh, and it's basically this kind of like dream logic where a character is literally ru- like running through dreams and kind of interacting with their past in a very strange corporeal way. And we had originally thought maybe it was something like that, or maybe maybe we had debated for a while of doing like maybe Tulip literally becomes another person. And there's like a, a metaphor of like the online persona becomes like a Tyler Durden. And then the real person has to kind of like in some way reckon with that and then we were kind of like eh never mind we're not gonna do that (laughs) yeah i mean it it was there's elements in the the end product of the book that are about this kind of loss of self and uh self-identity crisis between who becca is as a person or who she thinks she is and the character of tulip and the differences between those and as tulip kind of consumes her but it was going to be like up 10 notches of like, she really loses herself and just becomes this character. Um, and I think in some ways that is what happens in our book, but not in the, like we were going to try and do it all like super trippy and psychedelic. So yeah, it's kind of like got some remnants of that process. Like I said, I've met all these people before I swear <laughs> to God in real life. And you did a really good job of walking that line between the reality and the fiction. I mean, were you pulling people that you've worked with or know to come up with these characters or were you? 100%. 100%. Yeah. Some of them are, are directly based on real life people that are from the orbits of the YouTubers that we were talking about earlier. And then some of them are people that we both know. Some of them are people that I know. Um, you know, it's kind of a mixture of all of the above. Like, you know, uh, you know, we've been doing uh, an, a not insubstantial amount of interviews to try and promote the book and get the word out there before it gets released. 
And um, one of the things that people have asked repeatedly is, which is a completely fine thing to ask, is you know, Bella or Becca is from um, Becca's from Arizona, and I'm from Arizona. Is she me, or is that like autobiographical? And to me, the book itself is autobiographical for my experience and Nicole's experience because we basically wrote it together, right? Like we formed the story together, and so it it very much closely maps onto our feelings about these subjects that we're tackling, you know, the intersection of technology and humanity, uh, artistic compromise, navigating an industry that might not necessarily be hospitable to creatives. But the ones and zeros of that are camouflaged, right? So the writ large, it's deeply autobiographical. And also in the some of the fine details, it's autobiographical as well. But the middle area, everything is kind of mushy, you know, so there's like, little bits of this person I knew here, a little bit of Nicole's friend there, a little bit of me here, a little bit of Nicole there, a little bit of real person that the story is based on here. You know, does that make sense? Kind of like weaving oh, a yeah. tapestry of that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've got a few questions for you guys that kind of delve more into the business marketing side of what's going on with the book. So mm-hmm. my first question, the subject matter that you guys are bringing in the book is so unique and uh, so different from anything else you see in comics. Did uh, the two of you have any difficulty convincing a publisher to pick it up? <laughs> I would say yes. yes. I would say yes and no. Um, I think the majority of publishers are probably not going to pick up a book like this. And Dave and I, up until this point, well, I think we had had Fuck Off Squad published by an indie publisher called Silver Sprocket Bicycle Club. But going on that, oh, I guess I was mid. No, I wasn't. We, you know, pitched it around to a couple publishers, got some no's, and we just started the book because we wanted to make it. And we had come from self-publishing and we knew how to make a book. And so we were like, you know what? We're just going to start this. This is what we want to do. And if we find a publisher, we find someone, you know, we're going to, you know, walk down this line and then do it ourselves if we have to. And we did talk to one publisher and ended up not going with them for several reasons. But the real way that we ended up getting the deal with Dark Horse for this book is that Dave and I do as many shows as we possibly can. And by doing that, we kind of put ourselves in the way of people in the industry. So editors, other creators, friends, publishers, marketers, all these kinds of things. And... um I think that that is really the only way that we were able to kind of get this book out there because when you're no when you're a known quantity, people are much more willing to take a little bit of a risk on you. So um, our our editor at Dark Horse, Connor Knudsen, um, I think he had read Fuck Off Squad, and at one of these shows, he came to our table and was like, "Do you have anything else, something like this, maybe?" And we happened to be working on Tulip, and he was super excited about it, which is really fortunate that Dark Horse has someone like Connor willing to take these kind of different stories, interesting stories, and not just do what is expected or what's been done before. Yeah. I mean, Connor is Connor is the reason it happened because yeah. he advocated for it, went to bat for it, went to the pitch meetings over and over again. Like we would get in, you know, we would get semi-regular emails from him being like, okay, I'm taking it to this person. 
they, they liked it. I'm going to take it to this person. They liked it too. Okay, we're going into this meeting. Oh, it's, it's looking good. This meeting went well. And I, I think, you know, if I play this angle here and that angle there, like, I think we're going to, I think it's going to happen. And, um, you know, that was, it was, it was very um, existentially calming to know that we had somebody in our corner because so often comics is so cutthroat and anything that's even remotely different than what's being done it's just impossible to get anybody to give two shits. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and as an independent creator, you don't have a lot of support. It's basically you vying to get your thing made and to have someone actually being like, no, I love this. I'm going to convince someone to let us publish this. It's just, it's a great feeling. Yeah. It's unusual because I don't hear that story from a lot of uh, smaller creators that they have somebody higher up in their corner advocating for them and not just advocating for them, but actually going out and, you know, putting the book in front of other people's eyes. That's, that's fantastic that you had that. And it's, it's trippy too, because now that it's all the, you know, the book's coming out from them, I feel like I can say this and it wouldn't be anything that, you know, on toward, but I, I think I actually sent it to them like just cold. Like when we were first starting it, I think I just sent it to the whatever their blind submission or I think I might have been talking to another one of the editors who will remain nameless. And I had sent it to them and just no response, right? Because that's that's kind of what usually happens is you never get a no and you never get a yes. You always get a just no response. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so not that I had thought dark, the Dark Horse thing was over. I was just like, okay, well, that specific door isn't open. I'm going to figure out another way in. And then because Fuck Off Squad did well, um, and Connor found it through, I think his roommate showed it to him or something. Cause I think his roommate worked at a comic book store and she bought it and was like, Hey, look at this. It's a queer romance comic. Look how cool this is. And they're, they're all skater kids. Look at this. It's awesome. And he was like, Whoa, this is cool. And then came to the table and was very, very nice. And, and was just kind of like, Hey, like Nicole said, you got anything else like this? You want to you wanna make some comics at Dark Horse? And we were like, um, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, now that you got Dark Horse behind you, uh, is there any thought in your mind or Dark Horse's mind about how to take such a unique story like this and market it to the retailers and also the customers themselves? Because we all know you walk into a comic shop, you're pretty much dealing with majority tights and capes. Yes. And that's pretty much, you know, the market as far as everybody knows. So when you come up with a story like this, that's so different and original, it might be hard to kind of break through that wall of, you know, the, the, the superhero market. So do you have any ideas of how you're going to be approaching this as far as a marketing angle? So there's a couple answers there. One, uh, our book is a part of a pilot program that Dark Horse is doing where they're, um, specifically reaching out to bookstores um, and basically almost focusing all of their efforts on the book market, mm-hmm. kind of going after the this one summer or Bloom market with our book, which to me, if we sell half as many copies as Bloom and, and fucking this one summer, I'll be fucking excited. Um, and the other part of that is that for me, a lot of, you know, because understandably, Dark Horse has, they got Hellboy, they got Jeff Lemire, they got Black Hammer. So I would say, you know, more of the initiative is on Nicole and I to go out and beat the drum. So my thoughts on that are dual. I mean, and that's not to say Dark Horse isn't doing anything. They are, they've been very helpful. It's been a positive experience, but also I'm something of a bulldog. So I 
or a pit bull where I just am like, no, 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 no. I, we got to do more. We got to do, we got to do everything all the time. And so I have a list of about 3000 retailers that I've been emailing and who knows how much, you know, that actually helps, but you know, I email 250 a day and I send them PDFs and I haven't gotten an email from you yet. <laughs> well, I guess that means I don't have your email. So we'll have to, we'll have to, have to I mean, you have the book now. <laughs> I do. I do. Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's kind of, so part of it, one half of that is this list I've been working through of these, you know, 3000 or so retailers, um, which quite frankly is a little depressing because so many of those emails get bounced back or have somebody email me back being like, Hey man, this looks great, but I'm retired. The, the pandemic just wiped me out. Like it's, Ugh, it's that's so sad. It's yeah, really, yeah. 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 Um, Ugh. and then the other, the other part of that is, you know, uh, Nicole and I are not big names. We're not, we, we don't have, um, access to large media interview machines. Like we can't just phone up the New York times and be like, Hey guys, we want to do a fucking spotlight on us. <laughs> hey, so we've been going out and beating the, beating the streets, right? Like we have a giant Google doc of like 400 some odd podcasts. That's, I mean, that's how I connected with you guys. Cause I basically just, I go through every comic book related podcast on YouTube and email them. I go through every podcast related to comic books on Apple Music and I email them. I go through, I mean, it's boring. It's not fun. It's not a sexy answer. But you're like, so how do you market? And it's like one person at a fucking time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, the, and there's some smaller stuff that we have planned. Like, you know, we, um, we decided uh, with Dark Horse's Blessing to serialize the book online. So we are doing three posts a week of um, the book pages up on everyoneistulip.com. And that's a way for people to get a free look at what the book is like, what it looks like, what it's going to be. It also gives us an opportunity to post about it every week where we can say, hey, look, there's a new page up and talk about it as opposed to just being months and months of repeating the same thing, you know, or people getting bored of it. Um, we're also going to probably do some, um, as I guess I should do some of that stuff now, since we're so close to the release of the book of, um, some kind of Instagram stories stuff. Um, and like Dave said, we're doing, um, the retailer emails and we're offering book signed book plates to retailers as an incentive to order more. And hopefully people will be excited about getting a signature and a drawing in the book. Um, so we designed those and I just got them this week. We're doing these little um, stickers to put in the front of the book, personalized stuff. Um, so there's, you know, a, a list of smaller things that might help in the long run. But every single one of those things is a drop in the bucket of just a whole picture of what it is. So, you know, you do every podcast that you can do and maybe you sell one book. Maybe you the only books you sell are to the podcasters great. That's fine. I'll take it, you know? Um, so it just is a massive effort, especially Dave and I are used to normally the way that we sell and market our books is by going to every show that we can and hand selling our books. Can't do that anymore. At least not right now. So we weren't able to do anything like that all of last year, all of this year, hopefully next year when we have another book coming out, we'll be back to doing shows, but we had to find new ways of kind of getting the word out there to people. Yeah, that's been a big challenge for all creators this past year, uh, myself included, because 
people are still, you know, people might be home, but they're still starving for entertainment. So you can create it and give it to them. But now you've got to figure out how am I going to get it to them? It's a whole new business model that you have to come up with on the fly. And um, my next question, I think I already have an answer for, um, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But before I do, I think I'm going to mention that, uh, well, first off, you are releasing this as a full graphic novel and not as a monthly single issue, which uh, what I was going to ask you is what are the benefits or the detriments? But the truth is we touched on this and I absolutely believe that what you two are doing is the right thing because even though I'm a retailer, you know, us as a comic shop, we obviously have to appeal to that weekly warrior monthly single issue comic market. But the truth is that is a market that is slowly shrinking because it's not bringing in more customers. The people that are coming into comics now uh, are two different audiences. They're people that want a complete story all in hand that they can read like yours and the young adult market and the single issue weekly comics that come out are really appealing to the longtime comic fan and the speculator, but it's not a business model that really is built on telling great stories Bring it out, bringing it out to the public, and having people basically read a whole full story and really enjoy it. So, I do think that the both of you are on the right track about releasing this as a full original graphic novel. And um, I'll just ask the question anyway: uh, What do you see as the benefits and or the detriments to doing it that way? The book the book is designed to be a, a an experience that kind of has a beginning, middle, and end, and so often. And I know this from personal experience because I fucking do this shit too. You go, oh, that looks interesting. I'll buy the first issue just to sample it. And then when the trade comes out, I'll buy the trade. And then you never buy the fucking trade. Mm-hmm. Or this if way, you, sorry to interrupt. Or if you do buy the trade, you're lucky if the trade comes out because if everyone mm-hmm. just bought the first issue and didn't continue on, it really doesn't give the publishers any incentive to collect it as a trade to begin with. Completely. And I, I think also just from a, a purely strategic, so I think there's the reading experience answer, which is, I could talk about that for 10 minutes, but it's basically the same thing. It's like every, whoever buys the book, they get the whole story and that's the thing. And that that's every piece of the thought that we're attempting to communicate with that piece of work is there beginning, middle and end done. The other part of that is a strategic and or more careerist answer, which is that, you know, Nicole of the two of us, is the reason this book got fucking greenlit. Like <laughs> she worked on she worked on the pointy ears, you know? She worked on Batman, she worked on Batgirl. So she is the risk mitigation factor that Dark Horse was was able to look at and say, I don't know, this is a weird book about this actor and it's all kind of girly. I don't know and this this guy hasn't really done that much, but at least the artist, people know the artist. Okay, all right, yeah. let's do it. Let's hitch your wagon so, to what's gonna get it do done, they? right? <laughs> yeah. And and so and and so the the book itself is coming out as one volume makes it much less of a financial risk to Dark Horse because it's they don't have to pay for a single issue print run and a sing, and a issue two print run and an issue three print run and an issue four and an issue five print run. And then a trade print run. There's not five investments they need to make, six investments. It's one investment. And if we don't sell any, then it's on us. 
mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why I'm emailing everyone till fucking three <laughs> in the morning and going on every fucking podcast I can find because I'm trying to show, uh, you know, I, one because I want people to see the book because we worked really hard on it and I think it's good, and two because I would very much like to not have egg on our faces. <laughs> when the book comes out if it doesn't sell which honestly i don't think that'll be an issue i think it'll be if it doesn't find an audience on day one it will find one very quickly just because people who like this type of work who like snot girl who like motor crush um they're they're gonna like our book too and it's just about finding those people and if need be i will drive across the country and fucking hand deliver it to them (laughs) (laughs) this story is better served like dave said by a a whole a single book um and i think i personally tend to enjoy reading uh single issue graphic novels better but there is a charm and an interest in reading single issues um, and I think for a lot of comics readers, the idea of not getting that, you know, kind of excitement of waiting for the next issue is kind of sad. And I think part of the problem is that so much of what's being made right now is being written as a whole story and just put out in issues mm-hmm. instead of written as issues and put out as a whole story. And um, the benefit of doing single issues still is that you get to put something out every month. We've spent the last year putting out nothing and being and disappearing essentially from the scene, which is one of the reasons why we started serializing this to be like, Hey, we're still here. We're making this thing. Um, we didn't disappear. So it's, it's a fulcrum again, like the book, uh, you have to decide what is going to benefit you in the long run. And for us, with the growing book market, with the story that we wanted to tell, with um, the types of things that we or I enjoy making, um, the book market thing really is kind of the place that this fits. And also, I already have a a little bit of a place in the book market with doing YA um, for Batgirl. And I really think, like, it's, it's super sad to me. It's like you know, watching TV shows and having to wait till the next week, like binge culture has made that frustrating, but it's still kind of fun, right? Like when we're all watching the Mandalorian, it was fun to wait for the next week. Yeah. But everyone still complained about not being able to watch. <laughs> See, I, 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 I actually no, appreciate I, having a week to digest. Like I oh, like yeah, having, no. a, I like having two weeks between bat, issues of Batman to digest that part of the story. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do get the whole, you know, if you have to wait month to month, I forget what's happening. I understand that. But for me, I like to, like I said, I don't read books cover to cover ever. Your book and the house are the only two books in the last probably five years. I've sat down and read cover to cover. Yeah. So, that's, that's high praise, man. Um, yeah. um, I mean, it, well, yes, it draws but, out the enjoyment. Yeah, no, it, it does. And it lets you, like I said, like I like to sit and I want to digest you know, what is the metaphor here? What is the, you know, where are they going with this? What's behind this? And that's mm-hmm. just something I enjoy mm-hmm. about storytelling and especially uh, serialized storytelling. Mm-hmm. Other artists have talked about, you know, being an artist can be very isolating, kind of lonely because it's you and your board and, you know, you're working by yourself in your lab. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so going from month to month to, uh, this year long project, is that even like, does that make it worse? 
Well, I was never really putting out stories uh, monthly. I haven't done uh, a miniseries or anything like that in the direct market. So I've done some like shorts and stuff that's on, on the rack, but nothing consistently like that. The real difference for me is that Dave and I used to go to a convention almost every month. And because of the pandemic, we haven't done that at all. It's, it's an interesting feeling going from, you know, having friends all across the country, seeing them a couple times a year, getting to interact with other people who are doing the same thing you're doing, to just being in your house all year. And I'm very fortunate that Dave and I just sit around and talk about comics all the time. So I have at least <laughs> an outlet for that. Also helps that we all have the internet now. It's God, can you imagine doing this for the Spanish flu? <laughs> with oh, no real? internet? Oh, no. <laughs> No, yeah, I just, I would lose my mind. And I am someone who loves being alone. Like, I was not, I mean, last year was a very stressful year for many reasons. But my actual day-to-day life didn't change that much. Because I kind of just sit at home and draw all the time anyway. (laughs) Don't go out that much. Yeah, you're probably Um, thinking, what pandemic? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, really the major difference is not being able to see my friends at conventions. And the other, the difference for books is that, you know, most of what we've worked on before has been, other than Batgirl, has been shorter. So it just didn't take as long. Or actually, up until Shadow of the Batgirl, I was working a part-time job. So really, it's that I went full-time freelance for Batgirl and then was in my house for a full year, two years after that. Um, So there's a lot of factors, but not the switch from monthly to uh, doing a a year-long project. Most of these books now take me two years, three years which is crazy. I got to imagine too, that there's, uh, I was going to say, I was going to make a point that what you guys are doing are better than putting out monthlies, but I would imagine from your point of view, Nicole, being locked in for a year, two years, making one book, not knowing how it's going to be received on the market by readers, by retailers, but you just keep working kind of like just in the unknown, Mm -hmm. as opposed to putting out a monthly where you know every month how it's hitting. I got to imagine yeah, that that is a big you're not getting that difference. positive feedback right. when you do that. And right. it makes the decision. So, you know, in the last couple of years, I've had offers for multiple books, um, most of which I've said no to, because when you're committed to one book for like two years, you've got to really care about it. Mm-hmm. It's got to be worth your while. It's got to be a good deal. It's got to be a story you care about. You have to feel invested about it. And so I'm really careful about the projects that I choose to take on. And I I like to find as much smaller work as I can while I'm doing a big book. So mm-hmm. I'll try and find sh- uh, shorts or covers or backups or pinups or whatever it is to kind of supplement and also get that uh, endorphin kick of feedback. You know, look, oh, I got to put this out. Oh, I got a little money here. That helps. Um, oh, I got to post about this thing for a Kickstarter that I did and be part of the community when, you know, especially when you're working on something NDA and you can't even talk about it for two years, that's the worst of like, I swear Mm -hmm. I'm drawing. I promise you (laughs) I am working on something. Uh, I just can't tell you what it is. Well, one of the reasons why I think the two of you are on the right path is just my experiences that I've encountered as a retailer. And it's being that uh, the monthly single issue market while it's you know tried and true, you have the same people that come and buy uh, their issues every week 
you're appealing to basically a set market that's not ever going to change and grow. The new people that are coming into comics, they are not going to single issues. Those people, they don't quite understand it. When they come in and I try to explain to them how comics come out, they go, oh, I got to come back every month or I got to come back every week. No, I just want to buy something that's like a full story all in one book. So the new people that are coming in, that's what they're gravitating towards. So do you want to appeal to the old market who are just getting older and are going to either stop buying comics or die off? Or do you want to appeal to the new readers that are coming in and how they want the format to be for them? Again, which is the binge culture. These are people that are not uh, used to having to wait every month, every week to get a new issue because I, I think I can safely say I'm the oldest one here. They didn't grow up loving a TV show and watching an episode and having to wait a whole other week to see it again. They didn't grow up that way. They grew, they grew up where basically they can just watch everything all at once. And they are approaching comics in the same way. So if yeah. you want to appeal to that Dave newer and I are market. Dave the last generation <laughs> yeah. to you, have to wait for TV shows. <laughs> if you want to appeal to that, that new growing market, that's the format that you're going to have to fit into. And that's why I think that you guys are on the right track. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I appreciate you saying that uh, because that, that definitely is the, you know, the, the goal, right? The goal is to, because like we could have made a book that was just Captain North Continent Above South America guy person thing. You know I, what I mean? love like, that book. I know, right? Like there's so many of those books though. I didn't like know there's you so did many that of those book. Oh, I love it. I just watched that on Netflix, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what was it called? Skull and Bones or Skull and Shadow? Something like that. Oh, I can't yeah, remember. Yeah. There's, but there's so you you understand what I'm saying though, oh, right? Yeah. Like, take a genre, mix it up a little bit, add something new. Okay, moving on. And I like a lot of those comics. Like, I, that's not me shitting on that way of telling stories. I love that shit. Like, the more you know, kind of Mad Max ripoff movies there are, the better <laughs> in my book. I anytime there's a wasteland and some cars and a guy with a mohawk, I'm like, fuck yes. <laughs> but you know, but that's not that's not what. Nicole wants to draw. And so like, you know, there's a very specific kind of rubric that Nicole and I go through when we're deciding the project. Cause there's kind of like, you know, there's the stuff Nicole likes to do. There's the stuff that I like to do. And then there's the, the commonality in the middle. Right. And like, we've made a bunch of books together at this point. I think we've made like six books together. And so they're all have various versions of like, Oh, this one's more of a Nicole book. This one's more of a me book, so on and so forth. And and so it's about finding whatever that the best version of that common DNA is. And all of this stuff usually starts with some sort of weird formal conceit where it's like, ah, I got this idea. What if we put cell phones in a nine panel grid? <laughs> and then like we start talking about what that might mean for theme. And then we start building out characters. And then Nicole's like, you know what? I've been watching these really weird YouTube performance artists on my phone. Look at this. What do you think of this person? And so, you know, the the idea that it is uh, more engineered to appeal to a younger base is is true. You know, we're we're purposefully trying to make something that would um, be accessible and and approachable and still being fucking weird because you know what what, what are you gonna do? Uh, but 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 also some of that isn't calculated. Some of it's just like all right, and now we're gonna do what I want to fucking do, and we're gonna do this. All right, okay, yes, let's go in this direction. Sweet. All right. Well, but I think that 
thing that's important about this dialogue is that I feel incredibly fortunate in my timing in entering into the comics industry. And that has to do with the stuff that I want to make is just becoming to be really popular as I'm making it. And all of my stars have kind of aligned with a lot of that stuff. So the story that I decided I wanted to tell or that we decided we wanted to tell is something that works for the market that's growing right now. So like you could make everyone is tulip and do it single issues and market it to superhero guys probably wouldn't sell very much, but we happen to be at a time where we have this new market that is a little bit more open to these different types of stories, weirder stories. So why wouldn't you put that story in a place that it's going to get the most eyes on it and it fits the best. And I think that's really important. The fact that the, my style of drawing, the things that I want to draw are like, all of a sudden, something that publishers want to put out is just mind-blowing to me that I happen... Like, if I had started drawing what I'm drawing in the 90s, I would never get a job. Ever. You know? And so the fact that our timing has aligned so well is just... I will never not be grateful for that. And so much of getting jobs in comics and in art <laughs> in any realm, really, is, is it's timing, it's luck, it's who you know, it's having the skills at the time that you need them, you know, obviously it's all of these things, but I can't over talk how much luck really comes into it. (laughs) So listening to the the two of you answer that uh, just made me think of a question that we probably should have answered or probably should have asked in the very beginning. And I'll go ahead and ask it. And then I think we'll maybe try to wrap this up, Joe, because we've taken up enough of their time and want to get them on their way in their evening. Um, How, did the two of you meet and what was it that decided uh, made you decide that you wanted to work together? So Dave and I met at a gallery show where we had mutual friends and we ended up hanging out together. Dave saw my work and um, was like, Oh, you can draw. Um, And I, at the time um, I had read comics in, you know, middle school and early high school, but I had dropped off pretty significantly. I would read a comic here and there And I didn't have any plans to be a comic artist at all. Um, I was in editorial illustration. I was really trying to get jobs in newspapers and magazines. And he asked me, Dave had a comic called um, Action Hospital at the time, where he has kind of multiple artists drawing different characters within the book. And he asked me if I wanted to do a short with him for that. And I said no, Um, (laughs) because I, you know, I, I wasn't, I was never really into you know, what I thought of as American um, comics. And I had decided I wasn't going to do that. Um, But he can be very convincing when he wants to be. (laughs) And so I did the comic with him. And through that, I kind of discovered this love of making the books. And then through hanging out with him and going to these zine shows and mini comic shows and all these things, I discovered kind of the range of what comics can be, which as someone who was like, I read newspaper strips, manga, and then my brother would throw an American comic at me every now and then. And that was kind of the extent of my knowledge to discover this whole scene of art comics and zines and indie stuff. And the range that comics can really be was just, just incredible to me. And it really opened my eyes to the potential of comics. And since then, we've been working together pretty much consistently the entire seven years we've known each other. 
Is that true? Hopefully for many more. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. It is completely true. Yeah, yeah, that is. No, no kayfabe here. That's completely true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah. Well, she's leaving out the part where, where, when I was like, "Do you want to make this comic with me?" and she said, "No." Then I started crying and I got on my knees and started begging, and then I, and then I cried so much I vomited, and I'm sitting there with vomit all over my chest, just weeping, going, "Please, I, please make this comic with me." I knew there was and more to the story. There's the kayfabe. I knew, I knew there was more to the story. Well, why don't you tell everybody uh, when the book is going to be out? Yeah, uh, everyone's tulip comes out in comic book stores everywhere from Dark Horse Comics, uh, June 16th, and in bookstores everywhere, uh, June 29th. Okay, my next um, question was going to be, has it already come up on initial, on initial order? But obviously it has, so now I have yes, to go back yes. and check in my Diamond account to see if I ordered it. Because if I didn't, I am going to go ahead and put an order in ASAP. But we also, if you want some book plates, we've got oh, yeah. those now. Yeah. Um, so would it be more beneficial to you if uh, uh, I if I didn't order it by chance, if I were to go directly to you? Or would you rather me no, go it through would Diamond? Be better. No. Yeah, just go through Diamond and everything, and then you can just send me a message, and we'll send you okay. the book plates. Sure. We want to. We're basically just trying to make sure that every – uh, volume of the book it gets counted by Dark Horse and we're trying to make sure that it's of all course. Yeah. you know gotcha. above board and whatnot. Gotcha. Um, but yeah yeah, like I said it's uh, June 16 for comic book stores June 29 for bookstores um, and if you want to check it out online beforehand everyone is tulip.com alright and just real quick actually Dave you said Jeff Lemire, Jeff Lemire which reminded me we didn't talk about Sweet Tooth we will get to that mm. next episode because I watched the first episode and um, I have no clue where it's going. I didn't read it, but um, I <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed the episode. I watched about seven of them straight through. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yesterday. No, two days ago. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm, I'm really probably... enjoying it. I'm jealous that you have that kind of time. <laughs> oh, I, I work while I watch. Gotcha. So I, I'm I'm sitting there inking comics yeah. while I have it on. Yeah. So you're going back and forth constantly. <laughs> right because that's what your i do when is, i'm working and watching your is, life is I'm so hard constantly Nicole. rewinding just, so difficult yeah. so difficult you're just out here inking comics watching jeff lemire's tv show about an anthropomorphized deer boy <laughs> it's it's like comics comics and more comics <laughs> it's all of our yeah. lives well yeah. this has been great thank you for coming on and talking with us and letting us know more about your book and thank you for sharing it with us like i said i'm looking oh, yeah. forward to going finally making some time tonight and finishing it. Thank Joe. you. Joe. I appreciate yeah, well, that. <laughs> we, we really appreciate you guys doing this and I'm very glad that you both enjoyed it so far. Um, yeah. All yeah, right. Yeah. So we worked, no. real, we worked real hard on it. So whenever anybody is like, Oh yeah, I liked, uh, I read it in one sitting. I, that's like the, yeah. we've gotten that a yeah. couple of times and that's like the hitting it out of the park. <laughs> no, no, yeah. thanks, Eddie. not, not to say that you, you know, no, I just work. didn't have enough time, and so that's like uh, you know I oh, I got to get the work <laughs> he done. He does, he and does, then I'll go back. Defense, and, he owns a comic shop, and I think yeah. Dave said that's you both like, worked in comic shops. Yes, so we you do. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we, do. we, we do. absolutely know. <laughs> and like I say over and over and over again, the surefire way to never have time to read comics is own a comic book shop. So, yeah, uh, yeah. before we say goodbye, let's on the count of three, uh, give Joe a big, butt um, ready three, mm. two, one, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, thank you guys. Please come back yeah. anytime and 
the next will, 18 to yeah. 24 months when you guys knock out your next project. Definitely come <laughs> back. Um, and anytime in between, then you guys just want to shoot the shit, come through. We would yeah. love to have you again. Absolutely. All right. Awesome. That'll do it for this week. And thank you for listening. We will see you soon. Goodbye. Bye. This show is part of the Geek Nerd Network. Geek Nerd Network. Find more shows like it at geeknerdnetwork.com. This is Janet. Hey there, my name is Tyler. I'm Mary. I'm Aaron. And I'm Kylie. And we'd like to invite you to join us in the Fortress of Comicitude podcast, where we discuss such topics as... Creator Focus, where we pull a comic creator's name out of a bucket and talk about their history and books they've worked on. We also do what's called the Comic Book Club, where we pick a book, read page by page, and analyze how cool it is. And Was It Really That Bad?, where we take an old comic book movie from the past that got horrible reviews and decide if it was truly, really that bad. Plus creator interviews, movie reviews, top five lists, and so much more. So join us in the Fortress of Comictude.